You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, here from New York City. And today I'm delighted to be joined by a special guest. Joining me today is Eric Gomez from Washington, D.C. He's at the Cato Institute. How are you doing today, Eric? Great, Ankit. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Uh, before we dig into today's episode, uh, which is, uh, you know, for listeners, it's going to be all about nuclear weapons in Asia. We'll talk a lot about a range of topics. Uh, Eric, I wanted to ask you to just introduce yourself and tell us a bit about the uh, topics that interest you and uh, what you work on. Yeah, so I'm a policy analyst for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. I've been here for about four years next month. And what I've been working on over the past two years or so has mostly focused on U.S. missile defense deployments in Asia, U.S. missile defense strategy uh, writ large, and especially how that strategy impacts our relations in East Asia, particularly with China, um, but also with North Korea. So I've also been following the North Korean, first their missile program in 2017 when they were all about testing missiles every other week, and more recently the diplomatic process between the U.S. Uh, and North Korea and the inter-Korean process as well. Terrific. Um, yeah, you know, you sound like you'll be right on home, uh, right at home here on the Asia Geopolitics podcast. We've been doing a lot on North Korea recently. Uh, surprise, surprise. Uh, but this time, I think we'll keep the conversation a little bit on the broader side. Um, so I think I think a good peg for our discussion today, actually, Eric, is the end of the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. Um, that treaty expires in three days from the recording of this podcast. It is today, July uh, 20. Oh, sorry, four days. It's July 29th. The treaty will or the treaty's provisions applying to the United States will cease to apply on August 2nd, which will mark the completion of the six-month withdrawal period. Uh, for listeners unfamiliar with the INF Treaty, it was a 1987 arms control treaty concluded between U.S. President Ronald Reagan and Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev that uh, was the first treaty of its kind in that it banned a complete class of weaponry between the two superpowers. Under the treaty, more than 2,600 uh, missiles with ranges between 500 kilometers and 5,500 kilometers were destroyed by both countries. Of course, the 2019 political context and geopolitical context had a big role um, in the treaty's demise. Uh, starting in 2014, the Obama administration began accusing Russia of a violation of the treaty. And while Russia did violate the treaty, there was long uh, there's a longstanding constituency within the U.S. government uh, that has pointed to the fact that China, uh, ever so different of a country in 1987, has now developed a missile arsenal, 95% of which is thought to fall within the range of capabilities prescribed by the INF Treaty. So when the treaty ends, the U.S. is finally going to be able to develop these kinds of weapons. Um, as far as we know, the weapons that are under consideration right now are all non-nuclear and conventional only. So, Eric, maybe we can dig a bit into what the end of INF means. But first, before we get into that, I wanted to ask you a bit to talk uh, to talk about your recent anthology at the Cato Institute on nuclear weapons. Do you want to tell us a bit about that project and uh, what it represents? Yeah. So tomorrow, uh, July 30th, the Cato Institute is going to release an edited book called America's Nuclear Crossroads, a forward-looking anthology. Uh, my former colleague at Cato, she's now at Women's Action for New Directions, or WAND, uh, Caroline Dormany and I edited the volume, and we also contributed, between the two of us, uh, three chapters to it, um, out of a total nine. And the anthology came together uh, after hearing this quote from uh, General Hyten, the current commander of STRATCOM, who said back in, I think it was 2017 at some point, that our ways of thinking about nuclear war were not invalid, but they weren't current. And that sort of quote really stuck in my head. And I wanted to um, help figure out, okay, how do we make it current? Um, because I think he's onto something. And I think that a lot of the ideas 
and thinking that dominate U.S. politics about how nuclear weapons function and about how arms control works. They come from the Cold War. And that was fine at the time. I think I'm not trying to say, and the anthology doesn't try to say, that you know the Cold War lessons have served us badly. But they are trying to point out that a lot of conditions have changed, technologically speaking, politically, politically speaking. Um, there's a lot going on in the world that just doesn't neatly align with those Cold War conditions, in which case trying to apply Cold War lessons might not always be the sort of best way forward. Um, so the anthology goes into nine distinct topics. Our goal was to make it about um, make each chapter very accessible, both to lay people and to policymakers, something that wouldn't be too long or in the weeds, something that they could actually, uh, like a staffer on the, on the Hill could read and really just grasp the essentials of an issue and offer a few recommendations for how to navigate this new future. So we're very happy that it's coming out. Um, it will be live at www.cato.org slash crossroads um, tomorrow morning, July 30th. So go check it out. On the subject of the INF and in INF in Asia, Maggie Tennis of the Brookings Institution wrote the uh, chapter of um, the anthology about arms control and about what to do with arms control agreements in the Trump era. And I think that of all the, the she examines three agreements, the Iran nuclear deal, the INF and New Start. And she basically states that INF is sort of the toughest one to keep alive. And I think that it, well, it's, it's going to die by Friday unless some, some kind of miracle happens. And I think that she's right. Um, in terms of how different conditions have mapped on to our ways of nuclear thinking, INF is a big one. When INF was agreed to in 1987, the it was all about nuclear systems even though it didn't explicitly ban nuclear systems everything that flew between those two ranges was essentially um, a nuclear weapon so you didn't have the advances in conventional precision that we do today uh, china was still a pretty weak player on the stage so it was really only between us soviet union talking about systems that um, while it only banned those that flew to a certain range were pretty much all nuclear and now you have um, a lot of a lot more conventionally precise systems. Uh, systems. You also have more countries that have these systems in their arsenals. So an agreement that bounded um, the U.S. and 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 Russia, but also a few uh, former Soviet states, um, when more and more countries had these systems, became sort of less and less strategically tenable for mm -hmm. everyone involved. And I agree with uh, you know. I, I, it would have been nice to keep the treaty. I'm not really happy with the way the U.S. sort of dealt with it. But I also understand that we probably just couldn't keep that thing alive uh, in perpetuity given these changing circumstances. No, I think that's right. Um, and yeah, I mean, the the dynamics that you alluded to, the fact that we have many more countries with more sophisticated ballistic and cruise missile arsenals has really, I think, been a major driving force um, behind Russian decisions, right? If you read Bob Gates's memoirs, he talks about the 2007 um, episode where the Russians actually proposed multilateralizing INF, including countries like Iran, India, and Pakistan. And of course, that was a non-starter at the time, and that was before the uh, Russian violation uh, had become known uh, to the United States, uh, which happened much later in 2014. Yeah, so at this point, I think, I think you know, the INF, preserving INF, that fight is very much over. Uh, like you said, unless there's a miracle, the treaty will expire. And the question is, what happens next? And, you know, I've been I've been doing a lot of writing on this um, recently, too. And um, the 
the debate in the United States seems to be very much technology led. Um, there are a lot of people that are very excited to not have the quote shackles of this arms control agreement being applied anymore. Uh, so there's a lot of kind of exciting missile projects that are underway if you're into that kind of thing. But of course, um, you know, I'm, I'm deeply skeptical of sort of technology driving strategy and the debate in Washington about how these systems are going to be deployed, what capabilities they're going to bring to the table, uh, the conversations with allies, um, all of that remains incredibly immature. I mean, the thing with the collapse of INF is that, um, you know, we the violation was known since 2014, but really the process, the sort of indicators that the treaty would collapse imminently, it all happened very quickly, right? Mm -hmm. it, was, it was about a period of, I think, eight or nine months from the first news reports that the Trump administration was considering withdrawing from the treaty. And on February 2nd this year, Pompeo announced that INF was no longer going to really be a thing. So everything happened very quickly. And the, the consequence is that the conversations that should have happened with allies happened in a very rushed manner. Yes, the United States managed to get NATO on board. And yes, the United States managed to get Japan and South Korea um, and a few other allies to uh, either acquiesce or not really stick out their necks too far on the INF issue. But the question is, you know, what happens afterwards? And especially if the Pacific is one of the major uh, driving forces now behind the development of U.S. intermediate range forces, uh, conventional, not nuclear, uh, we need to have a better conversation with our allies about where these systems are going to go. And, you know, that kind of, I think, neatly takes us to another topic that comes up a lot in the anthology, which is extended deterrence mm -hmm. and uh, the challenges of doing extended deterrence, not only under the Trump administration, but um, with the, in the uh, you know, I'm thinking here of the Northeast Asian context, uh, what North Korea's nuclear capabilities, specifically its intercontinental range ballistic missile capabilities, now mean for uh, doing extended deterrence in a robust way with Tokyo and Seoul. Uh, do you want to do you want to talk us a bit through some of those issues? Yeah. So the anthology's examination of extended deterrence um, really happens in, I think, two chapters, one that I wrote, one that uh, Austin Long wrote, and uh, he's with the U.S. Uh, Joint Staff J5, but writing in a personal capacity for this volume. Um, and he, we basically lay out two potential logics going on here about what happens in the future of arms control, or no, what happens in the future of extended deterrence. And Austin's chapter is very much focused on China, and he offers a way forward that is very much focused on damage limitation, this idea that if the U.S. sinks a lot of resources into both offensive and defensive means to counter Chinese nuclear forces um, or other really, uh, yeah, primarily nuclear forces, that we can have certain uh, advantages in risk taking, that the United States de demonstrates more risk acceptance and that in a nuclear sort of situation, that can give the side that's willing to take more risk certain advantages. And I think that uh, he borrows a lot from uh, the late Cold War balance with the Soviet Union. And I think that he's not wrong, right? I, I don't think that Austin is making an incorrect argument. Um, but my other chapter that follows his sort of looks at the same problem, but through a slightly different lens and focuses on the sort of political or strategic context of the types of things we're trying to deter. Um, because I think in Asia of today, it's not the sort of big conventional land invasions. It's not these sort of big movements on the board involving, you know, China or North Korea, like it was during how do you protect NATO in Europe during the Cold War, right? I think it's much more about scenarios where adversaries think that they might be able to keep 
limited conventional fights, limited and conventional. And my own worry is that the way that the United States is trying to respond to this, that the way that we go about it could create inadvertent escalation incentives by doing things at the conventional level that might infringe on adversary nuclear forces or nuclear command and control. And I think there's a rich sort of scholarly debate emerging of this now um, uh, with people like James Acton, for example, writing a great piece in international security um, about outer space and and sensing, and Caitlin Talmadge writing another great piece in international security um, a year or two ago about like a Taiwan scenario and what could happen. Um, and I don't know if the debate has been fully resolved. And to get back to this point of you know INF and really plugging in a new technology into a strategic framework, what worries me about INF in Asia going forward is that the United States, from what I can tell, seems to be focused on you know, how can we have these INF forces to make our current military strategy better, to make it more lethal, to make uh, to grant us more operational flexibility? And that's all well and good. But I think if you have greater flexibility or lethality on top of a strategy that is going to be difficult to sustain in the long run, it's just not going to be very well sustainable. It's not going to mm-hmm. last for a long time and it might not do the things we expect it to do. Um, and I'd be happy to go uh, into more detail into that. Uh, would you like me? Well, so, to? I mean, you know, I just want to like uh, pick up quickly on the point you made about inadvertent escalation, because it was really interesting that for the first time in the Pentagon's military power reports on China uh, for Congress this year, they actually acknowledged that issue pretty upfront when the in the mm-hmm. discussion in that paper about the People's Liberation Army rocket force, the fact that China commingles nuclear and conventional um, units together, and that seriously complicates American planning. Of course, I think from the Chinese perspective, that actually augments deterrence, so that's going to be mm-hmm. very difficult to uh, for China to actually walk away from that posture in the short term, because I think it only benefits them, um, especially when you have sort of open acknowledgments of the fact that this does indeed complicate American war planning. Um, If you don't mind, I was was thinking of taking the conversation towards um, New Start and Mm. some proposals that have been coming out from the current American administration. Um, So first things, uh, do you want to just quickly tell our listeners what New Start is? Because not everybody listening to this podcast is an arms control wonk. Yeah, uh, so New Start stands for the New Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty. It was signed in... I believe 2010, it went into mm-hmm. force um, between the United States and, and and Russia, and it is designed to be a quantitative cap on the number of strategic nuclear weapons that each side fields at any given time. And the point of this is be and and there's also a lot of uh, transparency measures worked into this where the U.S. and Russia share a lot of information with one another about the number and Uh, locations of one another's strategic nuclear warheads. So that way you have some transparency and confidence building. Um, And yeah, and so in addition to the the cap, which says you can only have, I believe it's 1,550 deployed strategic nuclear warheads. And there's some specifics about counting rules that get into the minutia. But yeah, Suffice to say, that's the big that's a big picture overview. Right. No. Yeah. That was that was a terrific overview. Um. So yeah, it's it's pretty much the only thing uh, with the end of INF. It's pretty much the only thing standing between us now and a world without um, arms control between uh, Moscow and Washington. Um, so mm-hmm. that's that's I think the the main significance of the New Start debate. If you haven't been following that issue, uh, but the Trump administration 
has sort of picked up on this. Uh, by um, by 2021, the United States and Russia have to reach a decision on whether or not to extend the treaty for five years. Mm-hmm. And uh, pretty much, um, you know, this is one of those issues where a, uh, a good portion of the community that supports arms control broadly and also the community that doesn't necessarily support arms control sees some value in extending New START because if you support arms control, obviously you're going to support the extension of an agreement that limits the arsenals of the United States and Russia. But also if you're concerned with deterring Russia and you're worried about what it might mean for the United States to end, engage in an open-ended arms race with um, with Moscow, you see the value of constraining the Russian arsenal in a way that's advantageous to the United States in the short term. Exactly. Um, but the other issue that has now sort of thrown a wrench into the works is that the Trump administration has gotten it into its head that if New START is to be extended, it should happen with China at the table, trilateralizing it. And this is sort of a logical spillover of the logic that we've seen in the national security strategy and the national defense strategy, where Russia and China are both defined as the two great power rivals of the United States that need to be simultaneously countered. Of course, the problem, as Eric uh, hinted at in his description of New START, is that um, the way that you actually count deployed strategic warheads under New START effectively means that China's deployed strategic warheads are zero or a very small <laughs> number. We don't actually know enough to make that determination. There might be some mated warheads on canisterized systems, but effectively the number is very small. So how do you begin? You pretty much have to go back to the drawing board and redo the treaty. There's also the other issue that I think you know surprises some people that don't follow nuclear issues too closely, which is that China's nuclear arsenal is much, much smaller. Uh, it's an right. order of magnitude smaller than uh, the arsenals of the deployed warheads that Russia and the United States maintain. So how do you deal with that? Uh, do you encourage China to engage in a major arms buildup to the point where we have you know trilateral parity effectively, where Russian, Chinese, and American arsenals all look similar, and then we can finally have a conversation about some rules of the road on arms control? Mm, I think I think that would be a little bit of a difficult sell in Washington, encouraging a massive Chinese nuclear buildup. The <laughs> other be a, alternative that would be is, a pretty big yeah. change in policy. <laughs> it would, yeah. It would also be a major change in policy from China, which is pretty much um, you know run. I think you know Chinese nuclear policy has mostly run on rails uh, since 1960 with a few changes. And of course, there are perpetual debates in Washington about the um, reliability of China's um, unilateral no first use pledge and things like that. Um, But anyways, I mean, Eric, you know, I I think I know what you're going to say about the trilateral new start issue. But, you know, I wanted to ask you, um, where do you think this is all going? Yeah, so I think that the the impulse to get China more involved in arms control is is great. I think that's a good impulse to have, and I think it's a noble goal. The problem is that I don't think you can have new start and involve China in it. And I think if you want to involve China in arms control, it can't be through new start. So new start is again, you know, in terms of back to the anthology theme of looking at what happens when you have these sort of Cold War legacy things coming into modern conditions? U.S., Russia, and U.S. Soviet arms control was big, had a big, big focus on quantitative parity, right? And trying to control arms racing to keep levels at relatively the same thing and to get some more transparency on the other side. And that worked really well. And I think it still could work really well for the U.S. and Russia. But like you said, with China, the disparity in the arsenal size is so great that for China, transparency is not stabilizing. Letting the U.S. know exactly how much weaker China is in the nuclear realm isn't stabilizing at all for them. And they see a lot of benefits in the sort of um, obfuscation and not being clear, right? That has deterrent benefits for them given their posture. And I think that 
if we want to get China and Russia involved in some kind of trilateral agreement, we should try to do that. But we need to understand that it's not going to come through extending New START. And we need to think much more creatively about what multilateral arms control might look like going forward. And so I think, for example, a better place to start with sort of trilateral discussions might be trilateral discussions about U.S. missile defense deployments. Ooh, I was about defense, to get there. Yeah, to... <laughs> because missile defense is something that both China and Russia get very worried exactly. about. And I think that the U.S. Uh, hesitancy to really talk about it um, with them on their own terms, and uh, there might be an ex- there might be a degree here of you might never be able to fully satisfy them, but at least offer it and, and try to – this one – policy recommendation I come up with in the anthology in my missile defense chapter is if the U.S. puts some caps on homeland missile defense systems that are the least reliable and sort of most expensive boondoggle of the missile defense architecture, that might give us some political space to say, you know, all right, China, we're going to limit these and, you know, let's have a discussion. Let's try and work out some kind of trilateral agreement here because you guys also have missile defenses that the United States doesn't like. And so I think we're going to have to get very creative and be okay with no real concrete agreement if you get US, Russia, China in a trilateral arms control talk. And it's gonna have to focus on things more related to you know, the blurring lines between conventional and nuclear operations, rules of the road in new domains like outer space and cyberspace, and things like defensive systems and strategic defense. Um, it's not going, you're not gonna have much success if you focus on transparency and quantitative equality with the Chinese via like a new start thing. I think you need to keep new start extended for the US Russia aspect and then have this longer and sort of uh, more difficult discussion about what to do in the future in a trilateral perspective. But yeah, you can't you can't get there from here. um, if, If we try to just extend new start by adding China to it. Yeah, I mean, the American the American missile defense posture, you know, I kind of hear what you're saying is that uh, you kind of do what the United States did in the 80s with the dual track approach leading up to INF, where you apply pressure by developing and deploying missile defense systems, and you use that to create incentives for China to come to the table and engage in some good faith arms control talks to reduce buildups on both sides. Uh, that could that could potentially go somewhere. Of course, I think one of the big problems is political will, uh, right? I mean, as you as you know, um, being based in Washington, D.C., the political discussion around missile defense is very much divorced from, A, the capabilities and reliability of actual missile defense in practice, and B, the perceptions of the adversaries that we intend to deter or punish with missile defense deployments. Um, and, of course, the missile defense review that came out earlier this year didn't go as far as to say that homeland missile defense was explicitly about Chinese and Russian capabilities, but we've had multiple statements from senior American officials, um, pretty much pretty much hinting at that, right? And that confirms the worst fears in Beijing and and Moscow, where capabilities, the development of capabilities, has long been driven by concerns that American missile defense will finally get over that hump where it becomes incredibly reliable, and there will be sort of a technological breakthrough that will effectively nullify. <laughs> Uh, first or second generation um, warhead technology and uh, pose some serious danger to the ability of China and Russia to actually have a secure second strike. So and not and not even just at the sort of technical level, Ankit, but also at the uh, political level of what does what does it signal when the U.S. is willing to dump a bunch of money and effort into developing a system and to keep making it better when you'd think we'd be satisfied with a limited defense and also while also engaging in a big buildup of conventional precision strike systems yeah. 
uh, both conventionally and at the nuclear level, um, you know, I think that that kind of political fear or strategic fear of sort of a one-sided nuclear vulnerability really drives at Chinese and Russia where, you know, even if the tech isn't good enough now, if the long-term intent is to effectively nullify their arsenal or attempt to, then, and this is something, you know, going back to the extended deterrence question, if you're a believer in damage limitation, then yeah, like this makes sense. You want China and Russia to feel that. You want them to feel that pressure. Um, but I, I just don't, I don't, I'm not as convinced that making them do that and getting into this sort of action reaction cycle that we're already seeing happen um, is going to be sort of long term in the U.S. best interest. Oh, no, I completely agree with that. And, you know, on the other issues that our allies often get caught in the crossfire, right? South Korea's experience in accepting the deployment of the Terminal High Altitude Area Defense or THAAD missile defense system in 2017 um, led to a prolonged standoff with China, which saw it, which saw the deployment of THAAD, particularly the powerful X-band radar that accompanies the system as a threat to its uh, strategic nuclear activities. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think I think these are all going to be major issues, um, you know, that, that I think the United States is going to have to think about creatively uh, going forward. I unfortunately don't think that we're seeing many signs of that, but but hopefully, you know, efforts like your new anthology um, have uh, important contributions uh, in this debate. Um, so anyways, Eric, I think we're unfortunately running a little short on time, but I wanted to ask you before before we close out the discussion um, for some quick thoughts on, on North Korea and specifically the the emergence of obviously the, the the nuclear capabilities that North Korea very clearly has demonstrated uh, over the last few years. Um, what does what does that mean for the future of U.S. nuclear planning, as far as as far as you're concerned? I don't think it'll mean all that much because the United States, I think, has the, the we have the means to deter North Korea. I think we can live with a nuclear armed North Korea from the military deterrence perspective quite easily given what we have both conventionally and nuclear and even with missile defense in the region. And I think that increasing regional missile defense systems that can defend places like South Korea and Japan from a missile attack by North Korea is going to continue to be a top priority. And China and Russia will get upset at that. Um, but I think we're that's that's something we can afford to do, you know, and and be pretty much fine with it. Um, I but if we really want to get into, you know, moving North Korea's nuclear program in a way that is more beneficial for us rather than something that we can just sort of put up with. Um, I think it's going to require some big changes in the diplomacy strategy. I know that uh, like yourself and I believe uh, Vipin Narang have talked about this of, you know, there are real benefits we can get if we are willing to adopt a more sort of limited aims approach focusing on arms control rather than nuclear disarmament and sort of abandoning the impossible dream of CVID and focusing more on what can we get in the short run that limits their physical production capacity, shed some more light on their missile forces, things like that. Mm-hmm. And I, I hope the administration realizes this. Um, there seems to be a lot of anecdotal evidence recently that suggests there might be a shift coming, but until you sort of hear Trump say it himself, um, I think we're just going to have to hold on and, and hope. Um, the good news is, like, I, I still don't think, even with the recent missile test of the short-range missiles by North Korea, I'm not as worried about a return to sort of what we were seeing in 2017 with you know, all the classics of fire and fury and the frequent missile tests and the nuclear testing. I don't think there's much appetite to return to that yet. But there is a danger here of, like, the longer you wait and the longer you sort of let talks sit in a impasse place, 
the harder it might be to get some movement. So I hope that, you know, the U.S. can have some confidence in our own capabilities, recognize that, you know, yes, they have nukes. We can deter the worst outcomes. We're okay. We can we can feel secure in that and start figuring out, okay, what can we do to move the ball towards arms control with North Korea rather than this, you know, pipe dream of CBID? Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. No, absolutely. I agree with a lot of what you just said. You know, um, one one anecdote I will share or one observation I'll share is that, uh, you know, talking to and briefing a lot of uh, officials, uh, you know, uh, U.S. government, um, elsewhere, Seoul, Tokyo, uh, even at the U.N., on this idea of doing arms control with North Korea, I found that people uh, react rather poorly to the use of that word or that phrase, arms control. Uh, that's sort of seen as something reserved for superpowers. Uh, so I've, I've, you know, I've actually kind of taken to calling it risk reduction or nuclear risk reduction. Um, sort of find that it's 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 easier for people to swallow some of these ideas when you don't actually call it arms control, even even if that is the underlying underlying uh, solution here. I think the idea of uh, a tiny country like North Korea being able to deter the United States is, is still very uncomfortable for many people. Of course, I think, you know, um, as given that it is an apparent reality, it will probably set settle in in time. Uh, it just, I guess, hasn't been enough time just yet. Uh, so maybe yeah. we'll uh, see things change in the next few years. Well, if you don't like it, build a time machine and save the agreed framework. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Eric, on that note, I really want to thank you for uh, joining me today and sharing your thoughts on uh, many of these important topics. Thanks, Anka. It's been great. Yeah, great. Uh, we'll hope to have you back on soon. Um, so for listeners, if you like what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future discussions like this one. And visit oh, and, and visit www.cato.org slash crossroads to learn more about this anthology we've been talking so much about. Yep, that's right. And uh, if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, uh, please do so as well. You can do that on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or any other podcast provider of your choice. Finally, a note from our sponsor. Uh, this episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the consulting and analysis division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the world's most respected publications covering this region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to participate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.